AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today's very, very special guest is both. His name is Richard Lawless. He served in U.S. Army counterintelligence for three years. He was a CIA operations officer for about 15 years with three overseas tours in Korea, uh, Austria, and Japan. And then after 9-11, he went to, to the Department of Defense, where he was the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Asian and uh, Pacific Security Affairs. Uh, he has a brand new book out. It's called Hunting Nukes. I just finished reading it and really enjoyed it. And we're going to talk about that today. Richard, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the uh, the time and the technology that's allowing me to meet with you today. Richard, how did you get started in U.S. intelligence? Um, and when were you first posted to Korea? Actually, um, it was something of a fluke in that those of us uh, that went from the intelligence school, the Army, of course, uh, Vietnam was ongoing, and the presumption was uh, that we would all go to Vietnam, uh, either immediately or after a tour somewhere else. When I graduated from uh, Fort Halliburton in Baltimore in the intelligence school, uh, it turned out that uh, I believe 44 or 46 of the individuals there went to Fort Hood, Texas, for Vietnamese language training for a year. That was the uh, good news and bad news. And those folks got shipped off to uh, Vietnam. Um, actually, four of us were selected to go to the Presidio of Monterey and told you're gonna study Korean for a year and then you're gonna be blessed because you're gonna be assigned to Vietnam and I believe it was the White Horse Division, the Korean White Horse Division. So those are pretty aggressive guys. So enjoy your year at the Presidio of Monterey and then look forward to a tour in Vietnam. To make a long story short, the last day we were there, they hauled in all four of us and said, um, we have some different news for you. Turn in your fatigues. You're not going to Vietnam. Here's $200. Go out and buy a couple suits, and you're going to Korea, and you're going to be embedded with the uh, Korean intelligence organizations there because we've got a serious near-war problem in Korea. And uh, we all got on a plane, went to Korea, um, I was uh, sheep-dipped, if you will, uh, became a civilian, uh, GS-7, I believe. They bumped my age up by four or five years to make me more acceptable. I think I was 21 at the time, to the Koreans, that is. And I was assigned to a uh, post down country, and indeed, in a tiny field office, and uh, served my 13 months there embedded with a combination of Korean uh, Army counterintelligence and uh, KCIA. So it was an interesting turn of events, totally um, unexpected, and uh, that cast me on that particular direction um, for the entire future of my career. You know, to demonstrate what a small world it really is, we discovered when we were doing this that Richard and I were at Fort Hollibird at exactly the same time. We're almost the same age. He was a 96 Bravo. I was a 97 Charlie. I fully expected to go to Vietnam but um, ended up going to Germany. Uh, so it really is a very small world. It is indeed. It was, and it was, uh, as you say, Jim, these things are serendipity. I mean, uh, had we not been in a near war situation in Korea, 
I would have ended up in Vietnam and uh, my trajectory in life probably would have been a lot different. Uh, Richard, once you joined CIA, how did CIA prepare you to um, approach the nuclear target? Actually, um, the nonproliferation target, the nuclear nonproliferation target really didn't exist uh, at the time that I came in. I was very fortunate to go uh, straight to a field assignment not long after the farm. I got out um, uh, very early and um, found myself in a um, position within the embassy, within the station, um, in an evolving situation there in Korea where nuclear energy was just coming to the fore. And um, it was arranged with the ambassador, a wonderful man by the name of Phil Habib, and my station chief, Don Gregg, uh, that uh, the embassy needed a nuclear expert. And we didn't have any. And as a point of fact, the um, ambassador had asked three fresh tour State Department, pure State Department officers, if they would become his nuclear energy officer. And all three turned him down, which drove him crazy. So uh, the deal that we cut between among Don Gregg, the ambassador and myself was Gregg would send me back PDQ to headquarters and headquarters would uh, train me up as best they could because they'd never done it before as a nuclear proliferation specialist, non-proliferation specialist. So this was done with the reports team. Uh, they laid out a program for me within the DDI, shipped me off to Sandia for a week, then down up to Lawrence Livermore. And um, I came back to Korea uh, three weeks later, and um, Habib said something like, um, well, you're my nuclear expert. And I said, well, I'm not an expert. Um, and he said, yes, but in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So uh, you are my nuclear expert. So from that point forward, uh, the agency actually developed, and it was the reports cadre, I believe, a not nuclear nonproliferation format, if you will, or template by which they uh, trained uh, on occasion uh, future officers uh, to uh, specialize or at least have some level of uh, functionality in the nuclear nonproliferation field. Richard, I think it would be helpful for our audience if you would give them just a little bit of background about South Korea's overt and covert nuclear programs. Yes, it was very interesting. Um, I had an interesting position there because I was both in the commercial section as the nuclear energy officer, and of course within the station context, I was um, a tab to be um, a specialist or, or get on uh, the nuclear target as it was then evolving. And um, what we had was uh, a South Korea that was then bounding forward in a very aggressive heavy industry development program. And one of the key aspects of that was for the government to induce nuclear power uh, in the form of uh, nuclear power plants. And at the time I arrived, contracts had just been signed for their first nuclear power plant uh, with Westinghouse Corporation. So I immediately became responsible for that uh, activity from an embassy standpoint. At the same time, we realized very early on that um, in addition to a very aggressive overt program, not only for nuclear power, but overtly to... Um, uh, obtain the title, entire nuclear fuel cycle. That is the ability to not only irradiate uh, spent fuel, but also to chemically separate it by reprocessing, 
and to do other uh, things that would give them a capability, uh, should they desire to do so, to become a nuclear weapon state. That's on the overt side. On the covert side, we discovered soon after I arrived, and this was a real station coup, and it was, uh, I give credit in my book, very extensively to our liaison team for bringing this to the attention of the station, and particularly our um, station chief, um, that uh, a decision had been made by President Park Chung-hee of Korea to embark upon a covert nuclear weapons development program. And we were fortunate that we literally almost had this from day one. So from the day the decision was made, within a few weeks, we were out hunting for the target. And we would have never uh, had that degree of warning had we not had the station presence and the collection program that we did. And I will say, to add to that, when this was mentioned, one of our liaison officers, almost as an aside, uh, um, the station chief, Don Gregg, leaned forward, sort of looked at me, looked at the other gentleman, and he said, well, that's very interesting. Why don't you guys get together after the meeting and talk about this, after the staff meeting? And we did, and we began to uh, ferret out um, what was actually um, uh, happening and uh, with the covert program. And, of course, uh, we also needed to do a deeper dive on the overt program because it was soon clear to us and to the embassy that the Koreans, even though they had shared some aspects of their overt program with us, hadn't been entirely truthful as to what they were attempting to do in a very short period of time. At that point, we had a new ambassador. His name was Richard Snyder. He was an Asian expert. Um, in fact, he had been the lead negotiator on the um, return of Okinawa Treaty to Japan a few years before. And um, he was a um, person that uh, Don Gregg could deal with very effectively. We sat down with him and we said, we think we may have a problem and we're going to be sending some reporting in on this in our channels, but we want you to be aware that we're working very hard over the next few weeks and months to uh, complete the picture of what the Koreans are doing here, both overtly and covertly. The um, ambassador was engaged. He was uh, receptive. Um, that was not the case with his immediate political section cadre, particularly the political counselor, who became very upset with our reporting. Uh, when he um, looked at it, our field disseminations. And, uh, but be that as it may, uh, slowly but surely, over about a four to five month period, uh, we were able to secure additional uh, human sources, clandestine sources, uh, and expand our coverage with existing sources and uh, bring together a, I would say, very comprehensive picture between August of that year and December of that same year, so that we could lay it in front in a cohesive manner, our policymakers in Washington, D.C. And I will say that our reports people and uh, our um, analytical people on the DDI side, uh, although skeptical of our initial reporting, uh, soon became our advocates and began um, doing what, what I would say their job above and beyond the call of duty by comprehensively um, um, bringing the field disseminations into an analytical product that the policy community, mainly State Department and the National Security Council, uh, could well understand. And all that occurred 
within about a four, four to five month period. Richard, how did the existence of these two programs interject tension into the U.S.-South um, Korean diplomatic relationship? And what, what role did the ambassador play, particularly Phil Habib? I think we were extremely fortunate uh, that Phil Habib uh, was there when I arrived. He was there for the first um, eight, nine months or so. When he came back to the United States, uh, he picked up the position of the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Asia. And in that role, he was in the, had the catcher's mitt, if you will. Uh, Ambassador uh, Snyder, who um, replaced him, uh, and he were, uh, I would not say they were contemporaries, uh, but they were like-minded. They were both aggressive. And when our station reporting began to roll in, and I will say this, I think Habib actually was such a smart guy. He had a, um, a foretelling or a, uh, there was something that made him deeply concerned from the outset that the Koreans might try to do this. And so when our reporting started coming in, and he was asking for more, and the intelligence community was asking for more, it was very clear that back home, Phil Habib was uh, a eager consumer and was really putting the pressure, let's say, downstream to... Um, to have us uh, double down on our reporting. So it was very good to have a Phil Hubby back in Washington, D.C. Uh, Snyder himself um, was very concerned about the potential impact on um, our relations with the ROK, our relations with the Alliance. He was also concerned, he shared our concern, that um, if the Japanese found out about a Korean nuclear weapons program, or if the Koreans succeeded in advancing such a program, uh, it would probably uh, cause incredible damage to our relationship with Japan because we wouldn't have two potential or ongoing proliferators on our hands. We would, excuse me, we wouldn't have one, we would probably have two. In other words, uh, the Korean covert effort, um, if revealed, which it would reveal itself at some time, um, would trigger uh, a serious security and alliance problem with Japan. So um, to be more specific, uh, almost from day one, we had um, significant differences with our Korean counterparts because we moved very quickly, uh, politically, diplomatically, to cancel the contract or to force the Koreans to cancel the contract they had signed with the French for a reprocessing facility that would have allowed them to convert spent fuel and separate the plutonium. That became sort of the centerpiece of the diplomatic struggle that was on the surface. And our reporting on that, particularly the status of the contract with the French and the, the overt activity planning that the Koreans were doing that they had not shared with us. And by digging into that half of the equation, we had a very complete picture as to how they planned to uh, establish a complete nuclear fuel cycle that would be independent of uh, the United States uh, control and involvement. The other half of the equation was the nuclear weapons design work and the strategic uh, missile delivery system work that was being done at a, um, at a military facility that we also managed to anticipate and penetrate uh, literally from day one. Uh, penetrate in the sense of uh, having a human uh, 
human uh, reporting. Um, Richard, in that light, why did the South Koreans move a major aspect of the covert program to a remote site at uh, Taijan? And what role did Mr. Chang play? Interesting. Um, the Chang that you refer to is the gentleman I refer to in, uh, in the opening uh, of the book uh, that became one of our most important um, sources of information in that he was involved in the actual planning for the relocation of the Agency for Defense Development site from the outskirts of Seoul to a fairly remote location down country in Taejeon. Um, it was uh, a decision that they had made to, in part, relocate their capital city. This was President Park's dream, to relocate the nation's capital south to the city of Taejeon. So in league with that concept, if you will, the first two organizations that he told to move lock, stock, and barrel and build um, incredibly large new facilities was ADD, uh, the people that were in charge of the covert uh, weapons development program, and Korea, uh, CARI, uh, Korea uh, Atomic Energy Research Institute, which also was building a major campus not that far away from ADD, coincidentally. The whole idea here was once they completed that move with those two facilities, it would be much more difficult for us to have sustained access to those facilities, either overtly through the embassy contacts or whatever, or covertly. So there was a um, method to the plan, and it was quite obvious that um, what they were doing was building some additional security into that facility. Um, I will say one other point. Um, a few years before, actually not that long before, the Indians had detonated their first nuclear weapon, excuse me, their first nuclear device. Uh, the plutonium for that um, device came from a Canadian-provided research reactor called Cirrus. And that research reactor um, was a real bomb builder. It was a 40-megawatt 40 electric reactor um, that would have allowed the production of sufficient plutonium for at least two or three nuclear weapons a year. Uh, that very same reactor had been very quietly included in a nuclear deal with the Canadians that the Koreans were negotiating. That reactor would reside not on the Kerry campus in uh, Seoul, but would reside down in Taejeon. In fact, the entire ostensibly overt nuclear weapons fuel cycle activity would relocate to Taejeon and therefore um, provide um, or create a, an intelligence target that would be um, not impervious, but very difficult to penetrate. So there was a method to the madness, and I think we anticipated that extremely well. And uh, literally, uh, in the case of ADD, uh, we had the blueprints for that facility uh, and knew where every building was going before the foundation was poured. And um, the, that allowed our uh, people that operate satellites for whatever reasons to anticipate the location and watch that facility come out of the ground. So um, it was uh, something that we were behind on to begin with, but we got abreast of and then came on top of from an intelligence collection standpoint very quickly. Richard, what uh, persuaded the South Koreans to finally cancel the covert program and who was Mr. Oh, and uh, what role did he play? Good question. Um, I think a combination of factors. 
This was certainly the dream of uh, President Park to create this program. And the genesis of that was uh, his concern that Korea would be abandoned, much as Vietnam had been left, by the United States government, U.S. Congress, and that Korea would no longer, no longer be guaranteed its security uh, by the United States. So he decided to, um, to, to take the chance, I believe, um, based on that um, lack of confidence in the United States, uh, to undertake the uh, program, thinking that he probably wouldn't get caught until he was fairly far along or fairly deep into the program. And at that point, we really couldn't turn it off. Um, as far as abandoning the program, um, I will say that when Kissinger was, Henry Kissinger, um, was brought into the equation very early on, that is probably month six, month seven, and, um, and the decision makers, our, our foreign policy decision makers, realized that this would be a major disruptive effect on this alliance as well as on Japan and in the region. Uh, they decided to take uh, preemptive and very aggressive action. And the centerpiece of that overt action, if you will, was to force the South Koreans to cancel the reprocessing plant. Now, the South Koreans realized that the reprocessing plant was the key to obtaining the fissile material they would need for a nuclear weapon. By us going after politically, policy-wise, that facility and forcing them to cancel the contract for that facility, uh, it, to me, it sent the signal to President Park that under no circumstances were we going to allow them to have a nuclear weapons capability. It was a struggle that went on for 18 long months. It involved uh, the Canadians, it involved the French, it involved IAEA, and most of all, it involved Ambassador Snyder uh, having confrontations uh, with his Korean counterparts up to the level of uh, the senior cabinet secretary. Mr. Oh um, was critical for us because he was uh, the undersecretary in the cabinet for all major industrial projects in Korea, highly trusted by President Park. And when we were able to make him more fully aware of what was at stake, I think, I don't know for sure, but our reckoning is that he engaged with the president and said, look, the Americans know everything. They're not going to allow us to have this capability. And we need to make a hard decision here because they're literally threatening uh, the future of the alliance if we do this. At the same time, we had a very interesting situation with the US XM Bank, which had provided funding for that first reactor that I mentioned at Quarry One. It happened that at the time, the president of the US XM Bank was a gentleman by the name of Casey. And Casey came out to visit us. He was certainly aware that we had real issues uh, on the peninsula with regard to nuclear power. And as the Koreans asked for and were told that we would finance a second reactor, our Congress stepped in and said, literally, if the Koreans don't cancel the nuclear reprocessing plant, we will deny XM Bank funding for the second nuclear reactor. So I think it was a combination of policy moves that were directed by Kissinger and managed by Phil Habib at the State Department. 
um, the Exim Bank doing what it had to do, Congress doing what it had to do, and finally, with the help of the Canadians, and I will say this, the book it gets very uh, detailed on this, perhaps too much so, once we got the cooperation of the Canadians, once the, Korea, once the Canadians canceled their research reactor component of their program in Korea, and once they also began to lean on the French, the French were very difficult on this issue, um, a combination of factors came together finally at about the 18-month point where the French said, look, we're not going to cancel this contract, but if the Koreans cancel it, we won't um, oppose that, but they'll have to pay damages. And uh, at the end of the day, that's exactly what happened. And um, as I say, the French were extremely uncooperative, had their own agenda. Uh, but uh, all of these issues coming together and being laid in front of President Park, I believe by uh, Senior Secretary O, caused President Park to say, boys, we got to give it up. And um, that was about a two-year process. Richard, uh, based on a long career of um, following these issues, what thoughts would you like to leave with our audience about the challenges of covering the nuclear target in the future? Well, you know, um, I, I really conclude the book by saying the target is still out there. And um, I do believe the target is more relevant uh, than it ever has been in the past for the simple reason that the capabilities are there. Uh, we have uh, continuously or systematically underestimated the ability of people who want to build nuclear things to actually get the job done. Uh, we did it with North Korea. We've done it with uh, certainly with uh, the Iraqis on the first time around. And um, we have uh, entities like North Korea that are perfectly willing to export uh, technologies and, and ideas. We have the Pakistanis who have not been uh, reluctant in the past to share weapons designs with other people. So I think um, the net net of the book uh, is that we will never be able to judge intent. We can judge capabilities from a distance. We can judge capabilities from satellites or from SIGINT or other um, third party uh, information sources, but you're never gonna get to the core of intent unless you have human sources that are interacting on the ground, in the swimming pool, if you will, with the people that are making decisions. In the case of Korea, we got lucky. We had somebody that was sitting at the same table with him when President Park made his decision to build a nuclear weapon. Unless you have that kind of coverage, good, human, reliable, dependable, detailed sources, you will never have a handle on intent, and you will never be able to get ahead of a program to preempt it. And that's what our policymakers want to do. They want to be in a position to inject themselves into an equation, perhaps after a decision has been made, but certainly before there is momentum developed and it becomes an embarrassing situation between the countries involved. In the case of Korea, we got ahead of it and managed it so that no public embarrassment uh, came to President Park, nor was damage done to the alliance. And the only way that that was possible was because Seoul Station had 
resources in the right place at the right time, and when they needed to develop additional human sources, they did so and injected those sources into the intelligence collection equation. Uh, and I, I just am adamant that in a more complicated world, in a more capable world, um, we're going to need uh, case officers managing uh, human clandestine sources capable of accessing decision makers and accessing uh, the details of, um, of that, that level of planning. Very well said. I couldn't agree more. Well, it's a fascinating read. There's a lot more there. Uh, I recommend the book to you. And I want to thank uh, Richard Lawless for a very interesting interview. Thank you, sir. I uh, appreciate the time. And uh, there is a lot in the book, so I apologize for its uh, volume. Thank you. Thank you.